I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, if you remain standing for just a moment, to the Genesis 42 chapter. And I'm going to bring a part two today, God willing, on the providence of God. And I'm going to be asking the question, is God involved in the affairs of men? Genesis 42, and we'll look at only one verse, and that is verse 28. Verse 28, one of the sons of Jacob said to his brothers, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God has done unto us? What is this that God has done unto us? May the Lord add his Blessings to the reading of his word. Let God's people say praise the Lord, and you may be seated. This thing is made for a movie. Here's a man of 17 years old, hated by his brothers, envious of him, jealous of him. He has two dreams. They hate him even more, and now he's the governor of Egypt. 23 years later, he's now... Uh, the governor of Egypt, after having spent time in prison, called out of prison, and made by the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, to be the governor. Most all of you have been here through all of these studies. <clears throat> so I'll not labor too much on the background, but the idea is that Jacob, the chapter begins with saying, Jacob, he's the father. He has all of these sons, 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're in a famine. And so he sends 10 of his sons down into Egypt. He has one son he doesn't send, Benjamin. He sends all of his sons down into Egypt to buy food. And when they at last came before the governor of Egypt, they didn't realize that the governor was their long-lost brother Joseph, the one they had sold into slavery. And when they came before him, they bowed down to the ground, just as that dream Joseph had when he was 17 years old said they would do, and they said they would never do. And then when they left, they had to leave one of their brothers, Simeon, Joseph had them put in prison for three days. He first told them, I'm going to let one of you go back and the rest of you can remain in prison until he comes back with your other brother, Benjamin. But then after three days in prison, he said, I'm going to keep one of you and let the rest of you go home. So he kept Simeon as a hostage and the rest of them returned home but they returned home with a lot more than they came to Egypt for. If you look at verse 25, it says that they they got the corn they came for, but then it said there were extra provisions given to them, and then it says that this money that they had used to buy the corn 
was mysteriously returned. Now, if you look at verse 27, they didn't discover that until they stopped on the way home to get some water, kind of at a motel, to rest up, to get their animals something to eat. And one of them opened his sack, probably to get some corn out for his animals, and lo and behold, his money was in there. And he reported his findings to his brothers, and they were terrified. It says in verse 28, their hearts failed them. And when they finally got home, I'm sure immediately that the old man Jacob recognized, where is Simeon? Where's your brother Simeon? Where is he? And they began to tell him everything that had happened to them. Verse 29, including standing before the governor and the governor that saying to them, I'm going to hold Simeon hostage until you go home and bring back your brother Benjamin. And while they were explaining these things, each man was emptying his sack. And behold, it says in verse 35, there was money in every sack. And at that, the old man Jacob went absolutely ballistic when he saw all this money falling out of their sacks. Verse 36 And he began to upbraid his sons for all that had happened to him because of them. He may have brought up more to them than is recorded here, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 34, when they massacred an entire village because of their sister Dinah. It was Simeon and Levi who led that attack on that village. Remember they said to the people of that village who wanted to marry, the chief's son wanted to marry Dinah, and they said, well, if you're circumcised like the rest of us, then we'll do that. And so the, the Shechem, I think it was, he went to them and said, this is what they'll do, and we'll have their cattle, they'll have our cattle, we'll marry their sons, and they'll marry our daughters, and so on. And they said, okay, we'll do it. So they, when they were all circumcised, it takes several days, you know, if you're a grown man, to heal up from circumcision. So while they were all circumcised, could barely walk, Simeon and Levi came in there and killed every one of them with the rest of his sons. So he may have brought up all of that. He may have said, look at what you guys have been doing. You've caused me so much trouble. And he knows, Jacob knows, that they are a bunch of liars. Because he had been a liar too, you know. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And he may have even suspected that they'd lied to him about Joseph years ago, and now they were lying about Simeon. And then to top it all off, they want to take Benjamin down to Egypt. And Jacob is adamant in his refusal his refusal, he won't have it. He won't allow it. And we see in verses 37 38, Reuben tried to reason with him. Reuben is the oldest son, even offering up his own two sons to be slain if they didn't return with Benjamin. But the old man said, no, under no circumstances will I allow you to take Benjamin down to Egypt. Let me suggest another reason why Jacob may have suspected their truthfulness it may be 
that they were not going to tell their father about one of them finding money in one sock. That's in verse 27. But as they were all emptying their socks, the money in each sock fell out, and there was no denying it. So knowing them well, Jacob may have thought that they stole the corn or the money or both of them. And this may partially explain the fear that struck him when he saw the money fall out of their socks, according to verse 35. And so they said in verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? They clearly believed that God was involved in these affairs. How do we explain all that happens to us individually, to our families, to this nation, to the nations of the world? Is God involved in the affairs of men? You might be shocked if you begin to ask people that question. Is he at all concerned about what's going on in your individual life and in the life of others and in the life of the nation and in the lives of those in the earth. As most of you probably know, a few signers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were deist, D-E-I-S-T, deist. Deism has been called the absentee landlord theory of God. Simply says that God created everything he established the laws and principles by which everything is run. He spun the world up. It's rolling the sun. He set everything up. And then he went off to do other things. And he's not interested in you or anybody else. And there's really no explanation for anything that happens to you. Certainly he's not involved because he's involved in other things. He's not involved in the affairs of men and women on earth. But I would say, I will tell you this this morning, and I hope you'll listen carefully, because we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, God willing. There are a lot of Christians that might as well be deist, because most people in the United States who profess to be Christians do not want God involved in the affairs of their life. What about free will? That's what always comes up. Most professing Christians today believe that all God has to work with is a knowledge of what men will do. And they erroneously call this foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge is in the Bible, but it doesn't mean what they're saying it means. And so God, once he looks down through history and he sees what men will do, then he simply moves men to write in what we call the Bible what he sees that they will do, and we call this writing about what will happen, we call this prophecy. And according to this view, prophecy is just the creator telling us what he sees will happen. But he personally has nothing to do with it. He's just a divine reporter. And then the question arises regarding their view of foreknowledge. Is God's foreknowledge of things as they're going to happen infallible? 
Is God's ability to see into the future absolutely certain? What if men change their minds? What if some men or some nations take a different course of action? After all, and you know this, if you've lived a while, the only thing certain in this world is uncertainty. And the only thing that is consistent is changed. Everything in this world is in a constant state of flux or change. You've heard the old illustration, I'm sure, if you walk in the river, the river's flowing, you walk in the river, the water that you stepped into is not the water you're standing in, it's gone. You're not the same person two minutes ago that walked into the river. You're older, something else has happened to you, it's in a constant change of constant state of flux. So if God is told that certain things will happen and men and nations begin to change their minds, what can God do about it after all? He has said certain things will happen, but nothing is certain but death and taxes. Nothing is certain but uncertainty. So now we have to face another question. Does God have the right to change minds and wills? Surprisingly, most professing Christians and even unbelievers in our day answer that question with a resounding no. Man must be completely free, even free from the will and the power of his creator to do something in him or to him to affect his divine will. Now, if the Creator wants to interfere with the will of man in order to bless him, well, that's okay. But not for any other reason. And, of course, this presents some serious problems because we can't have it both ways, brothers and sisters. If the Creator sees that an individual or a nation is headed for destruction is headed for a ditch, should he stop that nation or that person from disaster or leave them to do their will, even though it will mean destruction for them? You see, we say we don't want to interfere with Man's got a free will. So when something happens like that, should God interfere with your will? And here's what we hear. If he doesn't interfere, then when something bad happens, we say, well, where was God? Where was God? Well, you said you didn't want him to bother your will. My friends, either man is God or the creator is God. Somebody's will has to be messed with. We don't seem to have a problem messing with God's will, but we don't want him messing with ours. Which shall it be? My will be done on earth and heaven will just have to cope? Or thy will be done in earth as it is done in heaven? This is the sort of thing we must wrestle with if we're going to be serious students of the Bible. Was God involved in Jacob's life? Consider everything that's happened to Jacob and his family. As I've already hinted at, he has a long history of trouble because of his own bad decisions. He deceived his father Isaac under the instruction of his mother to get a birthright. 
And as a result, he came under a death threat from his brother Esau, and he had to leave home to go live in another place in Mesopotamia. And there he had years of trouble with his uncle Laban, who deceived him regarding his wife. He ended up with four women instead of one. And changed his wages at least ten times, because that's what it says. And when he finally returned home, he feared for his life, thinking Esau would kill him. And after all of that, his sons have given him nothing but trouble. He's lost Joseph. Simeon's being held hostage in Egypt, and now the governor wants him to send Benjamin. What's happening? According to the Bible, you believe the Bible? According to the Bible, all of these things fall under the heading of what we call providence. Last week, we looked at two words, one from the Latin, one from the Greek, providere, from the Latin, means foresight at the foresee, and Pronoia, from the Greek, means forethought. And so we come to this conclusion, generally, men do, rather than think God is involved, we devise a false answer to this question that we usually, the Bible uses the term providence for. The providence of God The idea, the concept behind providence as revealed in the scripture is that the almighty God, the creator, has a plan and he unfolds that plan in history. I'll simplify it a little bit. Everyone uses the word luck and lucky. But if you ask people to define luck or lucky, you'll find that they usually can't tell you. They usually mean that events turned out favorably for them, but for no reason, no cause, strictly by chance. So what is providence? Well, providence is a a Bible term for the southern word lucky. At this point, I can't help but think of the story I once heard. I'm sure many of you have heard this story of a man who lost his cat, and he put an ad in the paper hoping someone would find and return his cat, and said something like this, lost cat, blind in one eye, one foot missing, one ear badly damaged, almost deaf, answers to the name Lucky. Many Jews and even Christians feel like the fiddler in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. You know what he said? He said to God, I know that we're the chosen people, but could you choose someone else next time? You see, by nature, all men, whether Jews or Gentiles, Trust no one but themselves. Our attitude as we come into this world is, above all things, my will must not be tampered with. And we are afraid of the Lord. We're afraid to trust Him because we've believed a lie about Him. He wants you to trust Him, but don't you do it. 
He doesn't really love you. He's not going to really be gracious to you. He doesn't really want the best for you. The only person you can trust is yourself. You must make your own way. You must do your own thing. Don't surrender your will to anybody, even God. Let him work out things as best he can around your free will. He can't do a thing with you unless you let him, so don't let him. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles while I'm talking to you to Romans chapter 9. Now, I want you to compare that attitude that I've just described to the terminology of Scripture. And I want you to ask yourself, are men usually talking about the God of the Scripture? Are they talking about the doctrines taught in the Bible? with what they say. Listen to this now. I'm reading. I'll tell you where I'm reading from. You can go back later and read from it. Genesis, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Yea, I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Then from Daniel chapter 4, all the inhabitants, inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. Listen to this little bit of Psalm 2 from the English version. Why do the nations plan rebellion? Why do people make their useless plots? Their kings revolt. Their rulers plot together against the Lord and against the king he chose. Let us free ourselves from his rule, they say. Let us throw off their control. From his throne in heaven, the Lord laughs and mocks their feeble plans. And then he warns them in anger and terrifies them with his fury. And he says to them, on Zion, my sacred hill, I have, in spite of everything you have done, installed my king. That is, in spite of all of your protests, in spite of all of your efforts, and in spite of all your resistance, and in spite of your will, I have done my good pleasure. Does God work his will? Will his plans be carried out? These are some tough verses, but they're in the Bible, Romans chapter 9. We read in verse 9 that there was a word of promise made to Abraham. This is the word of promise. Romans 9, verse 9. Abraham, I will come at a certain time, and Sarah will have a son. Now, you know that Abraham was nearly 100, and Sarah was about 90. This was the word of promise. Then he goes further, and he says, let me say a word to you about Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah. Verse 10. Not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good of evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls, 
It was said unto her, The oldest shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Does God make his decision based on our decision? Well, according to verse 11, these boys couldn't make a decision because they were in the womb. They couldn't make a decision to believe on Jesus or reject him. They couldn't make a decision to do good or to do evil. They couldn't do any works, good or bad, it says. Well, what's the driving force here? The purpose of God according to election, verse 11. How is the purpose of God worked out in history? The answer is through providence. Providence is the unfolding of the eternal sovereign will of God. He said the oldest boy in verse 12, contrary to what usually happened, the oldest boy is going to serve the youngest boy. Generally, the firstborn got the birthright and everybody else served him. And he got the inheritance. But he said, in this case, the oldest boy is going to serve the youngest boy. Now, I want you to notice this. When you read verse 13, this doesn't mean, when you usually think of hatred, you think of uh, malice. God didn't have any malice toward Esau. It says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What it's simply telling us is that God chose Jacob in this issue, and he did not choose Esau. He chose Jacob rather than Esau. And it says that he didn't do his choosing based on any works, good or bad, but independent of any of that. He was dependent it was all dependent upon the sovereign call of God. And then he asked this question, because he knows that this is what we're going to say until God teaches us. We're going to say, is this fair? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is this fair? Now, isn't it strange that no one ever objects to the view that the will of man determines the difference? When you say God looked down to see what they were going to do, you can't apply it here because they're in the womb. What are they doing? They're, they're floating in fluid in their mother's womb. That's what they're doing. They're not making any decisions. You can't say that foreknowledge in this instant, and really not in most any other instance, means that he sees what they're going to do because it clearly says they hadn't done any good or any evil. So he doesn't reject one of them because he's bad and choose the other one because he's good. Now, if you said God looked down and saw what people were going to do, he saw what these boys were going to do. He saw what they were going to end up doing and all of that. And then he made his decision based on that. No one ever objects to that view. That the will of man determines the difference. 
But when you say the will of God determines the difference, there are objections. Is that fair? Why do you think Paul brings up this objection? Because he knows that men will sit in judgment on God's will. And when men object to God's will being done, listen now, I want you to think about this. When men object to God's will being done, what they're really saying is, I am more fair than God. What they're really saying is, God is not merciful enough. I'd have mercy on everybody. That's what we're really saying. We're sitting in judgment on the will of God. He claims, the Lord claims the right to show mercy and compassion on whomsoever he pleases. Verse 15, God said to Moses, I will have mercy, but on whom I will have mercy. I will be compassionate, but on whom I will have compassion. God claims the right to show mercy and compassion on whomsoever he pleases. Mercy and compassion are in his hands. Now, I want you to think about something. Years and years and years ago, I don't know if I was even 30 years old, I wrote a little book on mercy. I might have it reprinted. And I pointed out that if men deserved mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. Mercy has to, by its very nature, be bestowed on people who don't deserve it. If you deserve mercy, you can't have it. You remember the old story of Abraham Lincoln? They were going to execute a man who had done something in the war between the straits, the civil civil war, and Mr. Lincoln was told that a man had traveled nearly a hundred miles on on foot to come and testify on behalf of this man that he was going to execute. And he just wanted an opportunity to testify publicly before they carried out the execution. And Mr. Lincoln gave him that. And this man stood up when his opportunity came and he said, this fellow that you're planning to execute, he says, I'm pleading for mercy for him. And he gave all of these cases. And President Lincoln said when he finished, he said, I'm so very sorry, sir, but the law must be carried out. Your friend will have to be executed. And with that, the man stood up and he said, friend? He said, this man's not my friend. He's not my friend. He's my enemy. And he began to tell everything that this man had done. He said, I've come here today, President Lincoln, to plead to you for the life of my enemy. And Lincoln was so moved that he pardoned the man. You can't have mercy, my friend, if you deserve it. You deserve mercy, you can't have it. Every time we say, why is this happening to me? We're saying, I don't deserve this. Why shouldn't it happen to you? Why shouldn't it happen to me? 
This writer of Romans 9, which is the Apostle Paul, shows that the only cause of mercy is the will of God, not the will of man or the works of man. Look at verse 16. So then it, it refers to mercy. It is not of him that wills. It's not of the will of man. It's not of him that runs. It's not the works of man. It's of God that shows mercy. Then he gives another example, beginning in verse 17. Pharaoh, God said, I raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. We're still talking about the Exodus. We're still still talking about how God overthrew Pharaoh. Not an arrow was shot. Not a gun was fired. And a whole nation went out. Because of the sovereign will of God. Then he draws a conclusion to all of these arguments. Verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will he hardens. Now I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 in the Old Testament. Second book of the Bible. Chapter 4. I don't know if you're right in your Bible or not. But I'd circle what I'm going to tell you. Every time it's mentioned. (laughs) Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. The Lord, when he called Moses, he said, Now, Moses, I'm going to tell you ahead of time. When you go in, I'm going to give you power to work all kind of miracles and all that. But I'm going to tell you ahead of time, Pharaoh will not hear you. He won't hear you. You know why he won't hear you? I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to harden his heart. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Now turn over to chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Verse 3. Verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he hearkened not. He listened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Verse 22, and the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he listen unto them, as the Lord had said. Now go to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and listened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Verse 19, the magician said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he listened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Verse 32, and Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Exodus chapter 9, verse 7, and Pharaoh said, and behold, there was not one of the Cattle of the Israelites dead, and the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. 
Verse 12. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Verse 34. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Verse 35, And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Exodus chapter 10, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I might show these my signs before him. Verse 20, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. Verse 27, And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Chapter 11, And verse 10, And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his hand. Chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he shall follow after them. This is when Israel was out of Egypt, and the Egyptians decided they'd chase after him. I'll harden his heart, and he'll follow after him, and I'll be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, and the Egyptians, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. Verse 17, and behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow after them into the Red Sea. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I could go on and on and on. Just listen to these verses, will you? Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Hezbon, would not let us pass by, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand as it appears this day. Then in the book of Joshua, this is the last one, the book of Joshua, beginning in verse 19, there was, a not, there was not one city that made peace with Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, and all the others they took in battle. Listen now. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come out against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Are you interested in Christ today? It's because the Lord has not hardened your heart. You were already hard when you came into this world. The objection. Would you turn back to Romans 9? Isn't it fun to use your Bible in Bible study? The Bible is almost a closed book today. Somebody reads one little verse and then they take off to telling you what you can do for Jesus and how you can have your best life now. But there's no opening up. There's no exegeting of the Word of God. 
And as I'm teaching on Tuesday evening, we had our Bible study last Tuesday evening at 645. And the theme is perfect peace rest. How you can have rest and perfect peace regardless of what's going on in your life. Be happy to see any of you, all of you, this Tuesday at 645. Now the objection in verses 19 and 20 from Romans 9 is that this doctrine is incompatible with human responsibility. Romans chapter 9 and verse 19, Thou wilt say unto me then, why does he find fault? Now I want you to underline this because you're going to want to go back later and look at it. For who has resisted his will? Now, he's implying here that the will of God, when God's determined to do something, the will of God cannot be resisted. And then he says, who are you, verse 20, to reply against God? Who are you to say, well, I don't like what you're doing. I'd be more fair than that. You're not merciful enough. Why'd you let this happen? The objection is that this doctrine that Paul is teaching is incompatible with human responsibility. But we must remember, and I don't have the time to really emphasize this this morning, but we must remember that mercy, to be mercy, cannot be deserved. We must remember that no son or daughter of Adam deserves any mercy whatsoever. We are born dead in trespasses and sins according to Ephesians 2.1. So let me leave you with a few thoughts this morning. Providence is the outworking in time of a divine plan that was purposed in eternity. According to the Bible, all that comes to pass in time, space, and history involves a divine plan and a purpose. If for someone to say they are lucky or they are unlucky, fortunate or unfortunate, is to say that there's absolutely no reason whatsoever behind the events that have befallen them, and that is to say that there is no reason for life. That we believe that there is no purpose in life, no reason for existence, for the existence of things, no explanation for the world or the universe. I tell you, we don't really believe that because if we did, we would kill ourselves. It's a fact that often and quite consistently, when people come to this conclusion, that there's no reason for anything, there's no purpose behind anything, there's no significance to anything, they destroy themselves. After all, why should we live out a life that has no purpose? If life has no purpose, there's no purpose in leaving. No, pers- no purpose in living if life has no purpose. Now, I'm not going to get into all this philosophy stuff, but some of you have heard of existentialism. And the hope of humanistic existentialism was death. Because if there's no purpose in life, maybe we can find some purpose in death. So suicide becomes desirable. Today, suicide is on the increase. And it's on the increase mostly among young people. Why? 
They have no foundation to stand on. They have no explanation for life. They have no reason to believe that their lives has any significance, has any purpose. The truth is, dear ones, there is purpose in life, and therefore there is purpose in everything that makes up life. But listen to me now. Unless and until we experience a new beginning in a new birth, we can't see or begin to understand the purpose of life. Try as we may, we can't find out the purpose of life through seeking. In other words, until we're born anew, life makes no sense. To say it a different way, we're here because someone wanted us here. And that someone is God. And there is no other meaningful explanation for our being here. This means that we're not here by accident, but we're on purpose, for a purpose, His purpose. The major purpose for all existence is to serve and glorify the God who brought all things into existence, including us. To know the purpose for which we exist, we must know Him. One of the great theologians said of himself, for me to know God, I must know myself. And for me to know myself, I must know God. The life which I live must be lived on His terms if it is to have purpose. You do it your way, you're going to stay confused. And it'll get more confusing the older you get. Because as Augustine said, we were made for thee and we shall find no rest until we rest in thee. The terms are very simple in one way, the terms on which, upon which life must be lived, but impossible in another way. It is this, I must believe him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now let me leave you with this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders, the Old Testament writers, the Old Testament prophets obtained a good report from God. God was pleased with them because they believed him. Therefore we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. God's word created and brought all things into existence. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which previously existed. That is, what can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is Hebrews chapter 11, the first six verses. So I ask you this, can you believe God? Can you believe on Christ? He that believes on him is not condemned. He that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone that does evil hates the light and will not come to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. The way out of the quagmire of this confusion is to believe God, is to believe on his Son. May the Lord add his blessing on the teaching of his word. Brother Dale, do we have any announcements?